0: Uh, history has given us uh, plenty of stories of the final hours of famous leaders, um, and the ones that seem the most intriguing to us are those stories of sort of boldness and almost a cavalier attitude in the face of death. One is, that you may or may not have heard of, is the death of Socrates, philosopher in Athens in uh, 399 BC. He, he overthrew the Athenian government one too many times, and so he was sentenced to death, he was supposed to drink poison, it's one way to go. And uh, the history tells us that he was surrounded by his followers who are mourning, but he's, he's telling jokes, giving ironic one-liners about how he shouldn't be sentenced to death, he should be rewarded for what he's done. Right? Drinks the poison calmly and dies, that's it. Another one, William Wallace, the Scottish uh, um, reformer, Um, I don't know the real William Wallace story but I know the story you all know which is Braveheart which really is it's all that matters right the end the the ending scene of that movie where William Wallace is dying he's going to die but he's given an opportunity to have a more uh, uh, a less painful death if he cries mercy he's standing there he's in pain his friends are all watching the crowds are watching and he musters up Breath. He says, the prisoner wants to speak. And what does he yell out? He doesn't yell out mercy. He yells out freedom. And you're like, yes. Right? Even in church history, we see this. In, in 1555, uh, two men, uh, one Nicholas Ridley and another Hugh Latimer, were leaders in the church. And because of their views on the Bible and salvation, they were sentenced to death. They were burned at the stake. And as they were getting ready, as the fire was being lit, Hugh Latimer says, Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. For this day we shall light a candle by God's grace in England that I trust shall never be put out. Man, what a way to go. We love those stories, don't we? So it's interesting that when we come, which we are now, to the final hours of Jesus' life, the greatest person in history who's ever lived, we see something completely different. We see a mix of emotions. We see agony. We see struggle to the point of even physical turmoil. We see Jesus being abandoned by his friends and denied by those closest to him. So what's the difference? Why? Well, you see, these other stories, they do or may change history for us, for better or for worse. Jesus' final hours and his death change much more than world history. They they change eternity for us. And what's happening here, behind the scenes, is something far more significant than just a great story about a a noble death. What's happening is a a battle for our souls. And so... As we approach this text this evening, these final hours leading up to Christ's death show us that Jesus must be abandoned. He must be falsely accused. He must be denied so that we can be affirmed and accepted. That's what Mark is trying to show us here. Now, we just read a few verses. We're trying to cover a lot of ground this morning, all the way through the end of chapter uh, Fourteen. So I think it's something like 46 verses. And so we're just going to jump in, but I do want to give you that outline. What we see here is the abandonment of Christ. We see the accusation of Christ. And then we see the affirmation of Christ. And so as we jump in, verse 26, we pick up right where we left off last week. It doesn't skip a beat. The Passover meal has just been completed. And Jesus takes his disciples to the Mount of Olives. This was a, a place just east of Jerusalem, behind the temple in the Kidron Valley. It was a favorite place for Jesus and his disciples to go and spend time together when they were in Jerusalem. And immediately, Jesus starts telling them, his followers, his disciples, that they're going to abandon him. Immediately, we see the abandonment of Christ, He says, you will all fall away. He quotes Zechariah 13.7. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Now, if you were here last week, and if if not, I would just encourage you to go online and listen to that sermon. But you already know that there's a somber mood already. Because at the Passover meal, which was meant to be a somber meal in the first place, Jesus told Judas that he would betray him. He said, one of you will betray me. Judas has, has left. The disciples are confused. There's already this, what is, what's going on? And now, after the Passover meal, Jesus is with his disciples, and he says, no, not just Judas will betray me, but you will all fall away. You will all abandon me. It's something different. It's not the same as Judas. Judas is going to fully betray him. The language here is, you are going to mess up big time, but it's not the end. It's the language that Mark uses. And immediately, who responds? If you've followed along with the gospel of Mark, it's not going to surprise you. Peter speaks up. Loud mouth, bold Peter. And he says, this is, this is never going to happen. And, and look at his pride. He says, they may fall away, Jesus. These other guys, but not me. I'm Peter. I'm the rock. Right? He throws his buddies under the bus. I can see what you're saying, Jesus, if these cronies over here, like, yeah, I've watched them the last three years, maybe them, but surely not me. He stands taller than the rest of them. And Jesus says, Peter, before this night is over, before a rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. Peter emphatically says, that is never going to happen. And all the disciples join in. Yeah, we would never let that happen, Jesus. We're your followers. This is just moments before they abandon him. So then Mark tells us they go to this place called Gethsemane. It was this public garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And uh, Jesus goes there to pray. He leaves the rest of the disciples a little far off. And he takes his inner circle, right? Peter, James, and John. Now remember them if if you've read the Gospel of Mark. Um, these are those who really, they're sort of jockeying for the first position. Peter, he's always talking, right? He always wants to be first. Uh, James and John, they they didn't really have enough gumption their own to ask, you know, to be Jesus' right-hand men. So they have their mom ask for it. And they say, we want to be your right-hand men. And so they're Jesus' inner circle. They want to be on top. They're right where they want to be. And he brings them and he says, you guys sit here. I'm going to go pray. He tells them to pray too and to keep watch. And Jesus begins to pray, and Mark tells us this is in a time of intense spiritual affliction for Jesus. Look at verse 33. He became greatly distressed and troubled. These are, these are rare words in the New Testament. They give the idea of being alarmed and burdened with grief. Verse 34. He's not just saddened. His soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Verse 35, he doesn't just kneel down to pray. He collapses in prayer. Luke tells us in Luke 22 that Jesus was so afflicted that he began to sweat. Now, that's interesting because later we see Peter warming himself by a fire. We know it's a cold night. Jesus is outside, in a cold garden, but he's so afflicted that he is sweating like drops of blood, Luke tells us. Have you ever experienced a trial like that? You've gotten that news about a loved one, and it's, it's so painful, it's so alarming and so shocking that there's actually a physical effect Right? Maybe you feel flushed or you feel that knot in your stomach. And I don't mean to be morbid here, but the language here is as if you were walking down the street and you turned a corner and you saw a terrible car accident with someone you loved and you knew the outcome was horrifying. That is what Jesus feels right now. He is physically affected by this inner turmoil. And we've got to ask the question, okay, why would someone like Jesus... Be so afflicted by something. And what is causing this affliction? Because haven't we already seen Jesus? Remember who this is. This is the Son of God. This is the promised one. This is the guy who stood before demons and cast them out. And they listen. This is the one who stood before a storm. Right? I thought about trying that this week. You know, on Monday night. Just go stand out and just tell the storm, stop. Stop snowing. It's not going to happen. But Jesus spoke to the storm, and the storm listened. We may think, okay, wouldn't his final hours seem a little more noble than this? So what's causing this affliction? Is it the fact that his loved ones, his friends, are about to abandon him? No, that's, that's not it. He knew very well that that was going to happen. Is it the, the excruciating pain that he's about to face on the cross? Sure, he's thinking about that, but no, it's it's something more. See, Jesus was facing something far more than the abandonment of his disciples and his physical death. Jesus was about to fulfill the purpose for which he came, Mark 10, 45. He was about to give his life as a ransom for many. And that meant he was going to take on the sins of mankind and he would be forsaken. He would be abandoned for a time by his own father. And so Jesus, loving his Father, he's had perfect intimacy with God the Father. He knows. He knows, the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God. I remember when I was a kid growing up in California, there was this place called Knott's Berry Farm. It's not a berry farm. It's a a theme park. No idea where the name came from. But I was there on a, on a class trip, and I was young, young, maybe third grade. and I was with the group, and I got separated from the group, which was typical of me as a kid. And I, I was, had this kind of moment of, okay, it's OK. I'm just going to keep walking this way. Didn't find them. Okay, I'm going to go this way. Didn't find them. And then it was just sheer terror. Like they've gone they've gone on the bus. it was later in the day. They're on the bus, they're gone. Here I am, like an hour away from home. And I kind of, you know, gained composure, found somebody who worked there. They paged the school. It was was, always fine. But that moment of being lost, it was terrifying. But the reality is, deep down, if I would have thought logically, I knew that eventually, even if the school did leave, my mom would come looking for me, right? Someone would come and search for me. But in this moment, Jesus knows that not only are his beloved followers about to abandon him, but for a time, his father is going to turn his face away. He's going to sever fellowship with him. And it is causing a deep, deep pain. So he cries out to him. He says, Abba, Father. This is a, this is a term of trust and intimacy and affection. It's, it's the only place... Only Mark uses this word where Jesus is talking to the Father. Rabbis may have used it, but they would add after Abba, out of fear of being too disrespectful, they would say, Abba, our Father in heaven. But Jesus removes all of that. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. And then he makes his request. Remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. We saw a cup last week, right? We saw a literal cup where Jesus says this is the cup of the new covenant poured out for you. But remember, Jesus told us we're we're not going to drink this cup again together until we're together in the kingdom. So what kind of cup is this? This is a different kind of cup. This is a metaphorical cup. Psalm 75 verse 8 describes it for us. For in the hand of the Lord there's a cup with foaming wine, well mixed... And he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. This cup that Jesus is about to drink, that he's saying, please take this from me, is the cup of God's wrath and judgment against sin. He says, if there's any way for me to not drink this, God, let this cup pass from me. Now, if you hear that and you think, God, anger, sin, let me just remind you that if you love something dearly, you also hate things, right? So if you think, I can't fathom a God of wrath and anger, I actually think you can. Because if you think of a loved one, maybe your child, you love them so much that anything that threatens their well-being, you will step in in opposition to that thing, right? So this is God, this is Jesus, He is going to receive God's anger towards sin, towards deserving mankind who's rebelled against him. Jesus is going to receive it in their place. And he sees that it's going to cut off fellowship from from the Father, and he sees how, how hard that is going to be, and he says, God, if there is any other way, it should encourage us. Jesus is struggling here. If you struggle with understanding God's plan, then I would say you are in a good place. Because this is where Jesus is right now. Don't don't feel like, man, I'm incomplete because I can't understand everything God does. I I feel weak. Jesus relates to you in that weakness. But notice what he says. Yet not my will, but yours be done. He had a deep desire for a way out of such terrible suffering. But his desire to obey the Father for our good was greater than his desire to serve himself. The text later tells us that he prayed in verse 39. He prayed the same words. He prays again. God, if there's any way. And where are the three disciples when this happens? He told them to stay awake and pray. They're asleep. He tells them three times verse 34, verse 37, verse 38. Stay awake. They were to keep watch. They were to pray for Jesus. They would have seen that he was in this place of dark turmoil, but instead, they're they're sleeping. So Jesus finally says, verses 41 and 42, The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. The prayer is over. Jesus has resolved. He is going to drink the cup. And then we see Judas on the scene. He's back. Judas comes with an armed mob and religious leaders. And they've decided beforehand that they're gonna, there's going to be a sign. And the sign of identifying Jesus, it was a dark night, is the, the one I'm going to kiss. That's who it's going to be. We have no idea why Judas chose this. It's really strange, actually. Because the language here for kiss is this, it's not just like a, a peck or a, or a greeting, right? It's, it's this lavish kiss, this expression of love. And then he calls him rabbi, which means my great one, my teacher. Strange. If Judas really loved Jesus, he wouldn't have sold him for 30 pieces of silver. Right? If Judas truly saw Jesus as his great one, then he wouldn't have betrayed him, would he? I think what Mark is trying to show us, what Judas has succumbed to, is what we'll see through the rest of the narrative of Jesus' death is that Jesus is being mocked here. He is mocking Jesus as he betrays him. Then one disciple decides to pull out a sword. John tells us it's Peter. He cuts off a guy's ear. It makes sense that you read that and you're like, yeah, of course it's Peter. Peter still thinks, wait, the Messiah, he's going to come and he's going to usher in this new kingdom through political power. He's going to march into Jerusalem and he's going to He's going to overthrow the Roman government, and then all is going to be well. So Peter thinks, all right, this is it. So he pulls out a sword, cuts a guy's ear off. Let's start the battle. Jesus has put the sword away. Luke tells us that Jesus heals the man's ear. All right, this is the reason Jesus came. Jesus didn't come to establish the kingdom through pride or through sword. He came, to, he came to humbly die. And so he's not caught off guard by this. That's why he says, let the scriptures be fulfilled He's referring to Isaiah 53 12, that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors. And then, as we get to verse 50 through 52, Jesus' prophecy of the disciples' abandonment is fulfilled. This is one of the most tragic scenes to me in the Gospel of Mark. When Christ is at his darkest moment, Mark simply says, They all left him and fled. It's a heart wrenching verse. All of them, think about this, all of them had their feet washed by Jesus. All of them were sitting around the table, partaking the Passover meal. All of them pledged, just a few verses earlier, we will die with you. And now Mark tells us that all of them fled. Jesus is completely alone. So what what does this have to do with us This tragic scene of abandonment, both by the disciples and by the Father. We should be aware of how quickly we can abandon Jesus. Especially when our plans don't fit in with His. See, the disciples were expecting something from Jesus. They were expecting Him to establish a kingdom, in their mind, of this world. They, weren't, they didn't understand. So when they started to realize, wait, this isn't what we thought it was, they don't stick around, they bail. Friends, we do the same thing all the time. Maybe we come to God and say, God, I'm going to be fully devoted to you. And suddenly we're thinking in the back of our minds, and hopefully that's going to help us get up this career ladder. But then we lose the job and we abandon him or we blame him. Or God, I've been faithful to you, so, so why has this relationship then turned out this way? I thought, this is what you wanted. Right? Disciples are learning this powerful lesson. It is so easy for us to abandon Jesus if we don't truly understand who he is and what he's here for. Right? But there's also, there's also this sign of great love for us in the garden. Think about this. Jesus is willingly subjecting himself to these things because he deeply loves sinners like you and me. In fact, Matthew and John tell us that at any moment Jesus could have ended this. He could have called on thousands of angels. In John's account, he he speaks to the mob. He just says I am and the crowd falls on the ground. But he's willingly subjecting himself to abandonment so that we may be saved from our sin. And the Father is giving his Son so that we may have life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That's what's happening in the garden. But there's something else behind the scenes here. There's this profound victory being won in the garden, even though it doesn't look like it. Because where else do we see a garden in Scripture? If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, you see Adam and Eve in a garden with God. But they've abandoned him. They've, they've been made aware of their nakedness and shame. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples, what? They abandon Christ. They flee in shame. In fact, this is why, if you look at verse 51 and um, 52, which to me is the most hilarious random addition to the Gospels, Mark includes a story of this young man who followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. There's a lot of you know, speculation. Why would Mark, he's the only one, put in a story about a naked guy running out of a garden? Right? Seems kind of strange. You're like, maybe Mark just had a sense of humor. Here, here's why I think Mark included that. I think Mark is drawing our attention back to the garden in Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve were made aware of their nakedness because they abandoned God and his commands. Nakedness, after Genesis 3, public nakedness was a sign of shame. And so the disciples are fleeing in shame just as Adam and Eve abandoned God and left the garden in shame. But, but, who remains in this garden? Jesus. Jesus. Adam and Eve abandoned God, the disciples abandoned Christ. Listen, you and I, every time we pursue sin over Christ, we abandon God, but Christ remains steadfast. And here's what he is doing. Mark is saying, Jesus is doing what Adam could never do, what the disciples could never do, what the religious leaders could never do, and what you and I could never do, what we fail to do, and that's fully submit to the will of God. He's doing that for us. That's why I love, back in verse 28, there's a shred of hope. You guys are all going to abandon, abandon me, but after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. He's saying It's as if he's saying, listen, you guys are going to completely leave me behind, but I'm going to make it right. I'm going to restore you, and I will meet you in Galilee when the mission is accomplished. There's a shred of hope That should encourage us. That should remind us of God's deep, deep love for us. His abandonment is not purposeless. It was for us that we might be accepted and affirmed. We'll see that more as the story goes on. So first we see the abandonment of Christ. Then we see the accusation of Christ. Jesus is then, uh, starting in verse 53, He's taken to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, and the, the, Jew, the Jews gather together to condemn Jesus. And this is just a complete mock trial. They had no right to, address, uh, to arrest him. That's why they're going in the evening. In fact, the whole story, if you were to go back and read uh, the Mishnah, which is this extra biblical set of Jewish laws that contained laws regarding um, convicting criminals in trials, you'll see they completely violate every rule. They arrest him in the night. They have no probable cause. So they bring him to Caiaphas' house when these trials should have been done at another location, a more formal location called the Chamber of Hewn Stone. Nope, they're doing it almost in secret in Caiaphas' house. These trials had to be done during the day, but they're here in the middle of the night. And if you were going to convict someone of a crime, there always had to be two trials. There's only one for Jesus. Jesus. If you're going to convict someone of blasphemy, you had to actually have them on record, directly blaspheming the name of God, which Jesus never does. You see, these men were supposed to be the upholders of righteousness for God's people. But as the gospel of Mark has shown us time and time again, they've completely abandoned their responsibility. They don't care about their laws. They're so driven by hatred of Jesus, they violate every rule because they want him dead. So they arrest him, they put him before people, and they say, bring charges against him. And no, but none of the charges agree. They've got nothing, right? which is telling. It's ironic, isn't it? There's nothing wrong because Jesus is sinless. He's done nothing wrong. So finally, the high priest, he's sort of fed up. He intervenes. Verse 60, it says, He stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Verse 61. But he remained silent and made no answer. Just as Isaiah 53.7 says. He opened not his mouth. But then again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. See, what Caiaphas is asking here, the high priest, he's not just saying, Are you... Claiming to be a Messiah. There was a lot of those. He's saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? A reference to Daniel. And Jesus is saying, I am. I am the Son of God. And so, up until this point, the identity of Jesus has been somewhat hidden to the Jewish leaders. He hasn't made these clear declarations. But now, not anymore, Jesus responds, I am. I am God's son. I'm the fully divine and exalted one. And that's all the high priest needs to hear. He's got his blasphemy charge in his mind. So he tears his robes in anger and disapproval, accuses him of blasphemy against God. And the text tells us all condemn him as worthy of death. And Jesus is disgraced, mocked, and beaten. See, in... In the gospel of Mark, all throughout his gospel, the person and work of Jesus, they've beckoned a response, haven't they? You've seen this theme. Jesus has told us, you're either for me or you're against me. And so the religious leaders have seen Jesus. They've seen him function. They've heard his teaching. And their estimation of him is this false accusation that he is a blasphemer, that he's not who he says he is. But what this does for us is forces us, it puts a, turns a mirror on us, he says, okay, how do you respond to Jesus' claim that he's the son of God? You respond with false accusation? Or do you believe him? We, we live in a, what I would call a fence-riding culture. Where everybody is encouraged to take no firm stances on anything, but just ride the fence on every issue. Sometimes that's wise, by the way, but not with Jesus. He doesn't allow for that. So how do you respond? I love the story of C.S. Lewis, an atheist author who became a Christian and wrote a Christian apologist. He wrote a book called Mere Christianity. He talks about this in that book. And listen to what he says. He says, You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He goes on to say, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And I would agree. How how would you respond? Would you accuse him as a false teacher, or, or even worse, he's a good teacher? He said some good things. Jesus doesn't allow that. Or would you, even though it can seem terrifying or unlikely, I love that about Lewis. He was a reluctant convert to Christianity. He says it may seem terrifying or unlikely, but I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And then lastly, we turn to Peter's denial of Christ. And this is where we see the affirmation of Christ. Mark brings our attention Back to Peter in verse 66. Now Caiaphas' house would have been, Clint's explained this before really well, it would have been a house with an open area on the inside. And we're told that Peter is looking up. So he would have been in the courtyard, there's a fire there, there's bystanders there, and in an upper room that was open, this trial was being had. And Peter is, is looking on. He's got just enough distance to not be seen, but he's also cold, so he's close to a fire. He wants to warm himself. But he doesn't want to get too close because someone will see who he is. And that's a a spiritual illustration as well, by the way. What's Peter trying to do? He's trying to ride, ride the fence. Let me get just close enough to Jesus to where it's not going to cost me anything, but still see what's going on. He gets too close to the fire, my guess. And a servant of the high priest, a servant girl, notices him. Verse 67, you were the Nazarene. You were with the Nazarene Jesus. Peter denies it. I neither know nor understand what you mean. Notice how quick that turn is. I would never abandon you, Jesus. I will die with you. A few minutes later, a servant girl around a fire. I have no idea who this is. This is a full denial. Notice what he says. He says, I neither know nor understand what you mean. He's denying Jesus both in theoretical knowledge and in practice. It would be like me saying, I could say, I don't know Tom Brady. And you would say, well, of course you don't know Tom Brady. You don't like hang out with him, right? Like have dinner with him and Giselle. That'd be, you don't. But then you would say, but you know who he is, right? And if I said, no, no, I don't even know who he is, you would be like, say what? How'd they let you in here, right? You see the difference? There's a, there's a theoretical knowledge. We all know Tom Brady, But there's a practical knowledge. We don't know Tom Brady. And Peter is denying both here. It's absurd. He's saying, not only do I not know him personally, I have no idea who you're even talking about. He's completely separated himself from him. He moves on. He moves even further away from Jesus. Tries to hide in a a doorway. She sees him again, verse 69. This time she's telling others, hey, this guy was with Jesus, but he denies it. They hear him speak in Galilean, or they hear his accent, and they say, wait a second, you're, you're from Galilee. And in verse 71, a devastating verse. He began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. This isn't a profanity type of swearing. It's something much worse. He's swearing by God's name. He's saying, by God's name, if I am lying, then cut me off from the people of God. Consider me accursed. And he can't even mention the name of Jesus. He calls Jesus this man of whom you speak. And immediately, verse 72, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered that Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Peter spent every waking hour with Jesus over the last three years. He learned at his feet. He experienced his love and grace. Jesus healed his mother-in-law. He witnessed his power. He even rightly declared that Jesus was the Christ. And he insisted that he would stand with Christ to the end. But in an instant, he denies him. Man, isn't it easy for us to proclaim the name of Jesus in a place like this? Which, by the way, I love. God has called us to come together in a a place like this and sing the word and hear the word and pray and encourage one another with the word. I imagine it was easy for for, for Peter to confess Christ to the disciples, right? But in a short conversation around a fire, he denies his master. That is where the temptation comes for us as well, isn't it? It's it's easy for us here to confess Christ, but what about in the neighborhood? What about around the dinner table? You see, what, what this servant girl needed more than anything from Peter at that moment was for him to say, yes, I am with him, and he is the Christ, the Son of God, and you can be with him too, right? That's what this servant girl needed. That's what the bystanders needed, but instead... Peter chose to cherish the approval of the crowd over faithfulness to Jesus. And in all of our lives, there are things that we value over Jesus. Maybe it is a similar situation. You have an opportunity to speak the truth of Jesus to someone, but oh, they're going to think I'm weird. Probably. Probably. They nailed your master to a Roman cross. But in that moment, what do you cherish more? Comfort? The approval of others or faithfulness to Jesus. So Peter's denial shows us something that even not even the strongest Christians are immune to denying Christ. What I love about this, though, is that the story doesn't end here. If we follow Peter's story to the end, we also see, we see two things. We see not even the strongest Christians are immune denying Jesus, but we also see not even the worst failures are beyond the promise of God. Doesn't, Doesn't Peter show us that? See, the opposite of denial is affirmation, right? That's why we've got, we didn't want to end here, right, with this sour note. We want to follow Peter's story to the end, While the abandonment and the false accusation and the denial of Jesus was tragic, it was necessary so that sinners like Peter and sinners like you and me could be affirmed and accepted by Jesus. Peter failed miserably, but he was graciously restored. If you were to turn to John chapter 21, John would tell you of this story. Beginning in verse 15. It's after the resurrection. Christ has taken on the sins of the world. He has died. He's risen from the the grave. The disciples are out fishing. And Jesus is on the shore cooking him breakfast. And he speaks to Peter. And he asks Peter a question. Do you love me? But he doesn't just ask him once. He doesn't ask him twice. He asks him three times. And after the third time... Peter responds affirmative every time. Peter breaks down because he remembers this moment. I have abandoned my master. But he also breaks down, I believe, because he is overwhelmed with joy that Christ has restored a wretched sinner like Peter. And friends, that is each of us. Each of us have abandoned him by pursuing other things above him. Each of us have falsely accused him of misunderstanding who he is we 've denied him, and he endured all of that so that we could be welcomed. He, he stands here now welcoming us to the meal to cook us breakfast and so if you if you feel weak, if you feel like i 'm broken, i don 't know that this thing is, is for me, let me just remind you of Peter and the disciples who God fully restored. I want to close with one story and then we'll we'll pray. A few weeks ago Billy Graham died. He was a America's pastor, he was a famous evangelist, and at his funeral his children were giving testimonies. And one of his daughters, Gigi Graham, told a story about a time in her life where she had made several mistakes. She had just end, uh, uh, her marriage for a long time had just ended and she started dating somebody too aggressively. Her parents said it wasn't a good idea. Her friends said it wasn't a good idea to pursue. Said, Take your time. She completely, in her, in her words, I fled. Completely ignored. Married this person. And within weeks, it was in shambles. And she finds herself in her car on her way back home to her parents' house in North Carolina. And she's driving up the mountain. And she's wondering, what are they going to say? What am I going to say? And as she pulls around the mountain and sees the house, she sees her dad, Billy Graham, standing out there waiting for her. And she pulls up, and he comes to the car, and he opens the door, and he embraces her, and he says, Welcome home. Welcome home. And she said in that moment, She said, My father wasn't God, but in that moment, he was God to me. Friends, that's the gospel. That Jesus would come to Peter and come to you and me after all we have done and say, Welcome home. So let me encourage you as we close don't wait, come to him. Come home through repentance and faith. Let's pray together.